And it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You know, the last couple days have been really full for my family. It's been able to fill my family's hearts. I mean, full in the calendar, yes, but also full in our hearts. Thursday, we were able to fellowship with Pastor and his family, and that was just great and a blessing and just a joy. Friday, my wife was able to fellowship with the ladies of the church during the ladies' Bible study, and then yesterday morning, I was able to fellowship with the men at the men's prayer breakfast. And then today, we're able to be in the Lord's house, and I'm able to fellowship with you all day. Um, and what, what, what an embarrassment of riches that is that the Lord provides. So many opportunities, even in a church as small as ours, so many opportunities to serve, so many opportunities to be around fellow believers. And to exhort is to comfort and to encourage. We need each other. We ought to be encouraging one another, saying, man, how great God is. What, look at what God has done in my life. Look, what is Jesus doing for you, and, and how can I pray for you today? Among fellow believers, we live in a climate that helps our hearts to be tender. When we stray from that climate, you know, when we start, I don't know if anyone else notices, but if, if you aren't in church for a little bit, right, maybe you're sick, maybe you're traveling, maybe it's whatever, right? I long to be back in God's house because you just feel like you've been gone for too long. And depending on the reason why you're gone, if you start missing out on being in church or, or missing out on fellowships, that can start to make your heart hard. When we encourage one another, we're sharing Christ with one another. Fellowship among believers is vital for your spiritual growth. There's something that happens in our hearts when we share with each other's lives. It, it can't be explained in any way except it's supernatural. The way that God can change a bunch of individual sinners and make it to where we can be such an encouragement just by being around each other. Strengthening one another. Fellowshipping keeps our heart tender. So do you have that kind of fellowship? Are you in community with fellow believers? You know, if, if anybody here had no earthly family, if you had no parents, no brothers, no sisters, you'd be an orphan. That's what you would be considered, be an orphan. And there's so many people today, sadly, maybe even some believers, that are spiritual orphans. Now, if you're a member of Napa Vine Baptist Church, I would say there is no reason for you to be a spiritual orphan. You've got a pastor and a pastor's wife who loves you. You have a, a church family here that is, that is ready to pray for you and to come alongside you. And that's one of the greatest joys that this earth can give you. And if you're looking for a good church, if you're here today and you're not a member of Napa Vine Baptist Church and you're looking for a good church, I think I may know one. Come and, come and find me or hit Pastor Up. We could tell you afterward how you can become a member of this church. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time we've had to look into your word. And we thank you for this. Uh, you know what? We're going to turn to a few different uh, passages this morning. Um, so let's start off, just so you're ahead of the game, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Is it not on? Okay, let me try this again. Oh, it says low battery again. I must have some sort of a... Uh,
All right, so when I was a youth pastor in Illinois, uh, there was a great burden on not just my heart, but my wife's heart as well as, as we led the youth group for, for many years, um, and that there's one subject in particular that really burdened our hearts, and that was the subject of discernment. And, you know, as, as I kept looking for a sermon to, to preach this morning, um, you know, obviously you're at a Baptist church, you're, you're here in the morning, and you think, man, you know, I'm going to preach a, a salvation message. That's the, that's the cookie-cutter way to do it, really. Um, but, you know, the Lord kept bringing my heart back to this message. And I don't think I'm overstating things when I say that there's never been a time in history, church history, when discernment is more needed than it is today. And why is that? Well, first and foremost, I think it's due to the fact that we have free access to literally millions of other ministries. With just a few clicks, you can hear anybody say anything about any subject that you want at an instant. It's at your fingertips. Most of you could do it right now on your phone. And because of that, all of us, in particular now young people, are subjected to this barrage of ideas. Whether those ideas are right, wrong, or indifferent, our young people will hear these ideas, and if not talked to about discernment, they're going to latch on to those first couple of ideas that they hear. Right? Especially those of us who have children in public schools, we need to be very careful. Because their discernment can be pulled from them, right? They're going to be told, for example, that evolution is correct and that if you don't believe in evolution, you're an idiot. Who wants to be an idiot? So, of course, from the very small age, they're going to grow up thinking the earth is billions of years old and um, that, that God isn't real and that there is no creator. And if you think that, it's like you're believing in fairy tales. Discernment doesn't really come in when right and wrong are easily distinguished. Anyone with a right heart, for lack of a better term, can make that call. I know that I shouldn't walk out here and rob Sahara Pizza. I know that that's wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. Even the guy who's robbing it knows it's wrong. That's why he wears a mask, right? That's why he runs after he's done, because he knows it's wrong. Discernment comes when the decision falls in that murky gray. And the line between two positions then is, is e easily indistinguishable, is nearly indistinguishable. But the overall decision that we make can affect our family, it can affect our testimony, and over time, it can affect our communion with God. So I want to talk about this morning is a very difficult and sometimes it can be a very controversial subject. You know, it's kind of like Pastor was talking about at Sunday school this morning. Sometimes you can preach a message, and uh, I've seen it, right? And, and I know what happens. Sometimes you preach a message, and individuals think that you're talking straight to them. And, and like Pastor said, sometimes it's not that we think there's something crazy going on. It's that the Lord laid that message on our heart, or we're preaching through Ephesians, and it just happened to land at that time. If, if this message to, speaks to you today, it's not because I'm thinking of you, Right? It's not because pastor told me, you know, you should preach on discernment because so-and-so really needs that, right? Pastor doesn't know what I'm preaching today more, any more than, than my wife did, to be honest with you. I didn't share this with her either. Um, so what I'm talking about today sometimes can be very difficult and very controversial. I want to illustrate this topic using three 
Old Testament comparisons. All of these individuals, though, are also mentioned in the New Testament. In each case, these men are going to have two sides to their lives. And in this combination of the two sides that makes it so difficult to know where to come down in regards to these characters. So open your Bibles this morning first. Keep your finger over um, in 2 Peter. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. When looking at the first of these characters, we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet. The setting for this story is directly after the Israelites completed their wandering in the wilderness. So they've completed the wandering. Um, Israel is across the river from the city of Jericho. Stopping here across from Jericho puts the Israelites in a place that the Bible calls Moab. Now the king of Moab, as you may remember if you've read through Numbers, was a man by the name of Balak. Balak was worried about the increasing number of Israelites in his land, right? He didn't like all these refugees coming. So he sends for a prophet that can curse the Israelites for him. And the name of that man is Balaam. What I want to do is look at some characteristics of Balaam, all right? The first characteristic we're going to look at is going to be illustrated in the New Testament. So if you have your finger in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, here we go. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who lived the wages of unrighteousness. The Bible often refers to this type of person as covetous. So first and foremost, Balaam was covetous in his motives. I want to give a second New Testament reference if I can. It's in Revelation chapter 2 in the letter that the Lord sends to Pergamos. Now, if you don't have time to turn there, that's okay. But if you do, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 if you're taking notes. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. I, it's probably just because I'm kind of a geek, but also because I love reading God's word. These are things that I love. I love when you can read through numbers and you see a guy, and then whether it's at a Bible program or you have a concordance Bible or whether you have something, and you can find all the different instances that you can find that guy. And so it's funny, like, if you're reading about some guy in Numbers, most people would not think, if I'm in Numbers, that I'm also going to find that guy mentioned all the way at the end in the book of Revelation. And I think that is so cool. Now, this is new information. It doesn't happen anywhere in the story of Numbers 22 through 24. Nowhere does it talk about this story about Balaam. We're introduced to this event without Balaam's name attached in the following chapter, chapter 25. What we see there is that the Moabite women invited the Israelite men to come and eat. And when they would come down, they would serve them meat that had been offered to idols, which was bad for them. And eventually they would partake in immorality with these women. And in the end, the Israelite men actually then started bowing down to the Moabite idols, right? Now, if you were reading Numbers and had never seen this New Testament reference before, you would never know that Balaam was involved in this. That he was behind it. But Balaam evidently advised Balak at some point with this simple strategy. 
And that was to make friends with the Israelites with your women. Have the women go and seduce them. Bring them away from God. And you will, at the very least, prevent them from treating you with hostility. At the very most, you're going to turn their hearts then away from God. So this man's counsel drew the people of Israel toward idolatry and toward immorality. But on the other side of the coin, look at chapter 22, right, and verse 38. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 38. It says, And Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. This is the first of five times that Balaam is going to say that phrase, that sentence, in one way or another. Five times, he says, in no uncertain terms, I'm not saying nothing that's going to change the word of God. I'm not saying anything untrue, unfiltered, unchanged. I'm not going to do that to God's word. What a great claim. But did he follow through? A lot of people love to play lip service in this way. But few in this world actually follow through with it, right? To the very end. Well, we see several times throughout these two chapters that this is absolutely true. Numbers 23, 16, And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. So what we need to wrap our minds around here is that despite what we know from the New Testament, this man preached an inspired word. He was a prophet who was spirit-filled and spoke inspired scripture. We know that because his teachings are right here. We can read them today. Yet, we also know that his motive and the effects of his ministry were entirely unscriptural. Yet God knew about both of these problems way ahead of time. And he was still filled with the Spirit. He was still uttering inspired and prophetic scripture. So we have a man here with two sides to his ministry that when put together can really send you a little bit of thinking, right? Okay, we're going to put a pin in, in old Balaam there. We're going to go to illustration number two. This is a man whose mother's name we don't know. We do know his father's name, which is Manoah. And he was told that his son would be born and that he would be a Nazarite all of his life. Of course, most of you have already guessed that this man's name is Samson. Turn with me to Judges chapter 14, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Judges chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Most of us know this story of Samson, but it's interesting to look at him maybe sometimes in a different light. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Right? I want to marry her. Go get her for me. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all thy people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. What Samson's asking his parents to do here is absolutely forbidden. This is not okay. 
His parents even know that. They're saying that to him. We know that also from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, which Samson knew also, right? He's not off the hook here. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. But what's really interesting is the term that Samson used in the passage here, his language. For she pleaseth me well. This term in the Hebrew literally means this is right in my own eyes. Now, does that sound a little more familiar to what people say? I'm just going to do me, right? I'm going to do what makes me happy. This term isn't speaking of her appearance. He's not saying, well, look, she looks real good, so I want to I get her number, right? She's, she's looking pretty good. She, I like her dress or I like whatever. It's speaking of something that is straight or of God or of his ways. This, this is an ethical term, right, that he uses here. So Samson allows his subjective view of right and wrong to override what his parents are telling him, which leads Samson to an utterly then unscriptural marriage, which brings us to our second passage, Judges chapter 16 and verse 1. Then went Samson to Geza and saw there a harlot, and he went in unto her. So the first story we see him attempting an unscriptural marriage. The second story sees him sinking even lower and going in unto a prostitute. And now look at verse 4. This is our third passage about him. Judges chapter 16, verse 4. And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman. All right, now remember, this is his third woman. This sounds like your little fourth grade boyfriend, girlfriend. Oh, I love you this week. Now I don't love you. Now I love this person this week. Samson was, was doing that. Here's his third woman now that he says he loves in the Valley of Sork, whose name was Delilah. Now, we all know about Delilah, right? That's his ultimate demise here. So from these passages, we can get Samson's first characteristic, which is this. Over his 20-year reign as the judge of Israel, he had attempted or engaged in at least three relationships. And all of them were either, either unscriptural or immoral or both. Now, here's a second characteristic. He kept his Nazarite vow the entire time. The man is externally a separatist the entire time. It isn't until the very end that Delilah gets the secret out of him and he breaks his Nazarite vow. But we need to look at a third characteristic, which is this. Where is God in relation to Samson's life? Let's go back through the account of Samson and Judges very quickly and see exactly where God is in his life. All right? Let's go back to chapter 14 where we started. Apparently, as they went after the first Philistine woman, he and his parents at somewhere in shape and point became separated. I don't really know exactly how or where, but they became separated. And we know this because Samson's alone when he is approached by the lion. Right? His parents aren't with him. So Judges chapter 14, verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told, his father, but he told not his father and his mother what he had done. Now, he is on his way to do an unscriptural thing. It would be easy to say that the Lord put the lion there to stop him, but if you said that, you would be incorrect. Right? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him 
which gave him the power to tear this lion in half like a newborn baby. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up into his father's house. Now remember here, this situation arose because of the riddle that he posed at the wedding, which he ultimately lost, which forced him to come up with a huge expense of 30 changes of clothes, which at that time was nothing cheap, right? He's not getting 30 shirts from Goodwill. This was expensive. This was something that was difficult. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him again in a situation that he is in for no other reason. He's in it because of his own disobedience. And the Lord gives him victory. Look at chapter 15. Remember, here, that Samson's future father-in-law gives his fiancée to his best friend. And Samson is angry and sets fire to the fields by tying the fire to the tails of the foxes. And remember that in the aftermath, his countrymen didn't want any problems with the Philistines. So they come and speak to him and they bind him. Judges 15, 14. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax and that was burnt with fire and his bands loosed from off his hands. Do you remember how many adult Philistine men he killed here? It's like a thousand, right? Again, all of this then is in connection to his disobedience. And remember the set of stories with Delilah, right? He is in utter immorality that entire time. The whole time. And each time he fools Delilah, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he is delivered. So here is our next characteristic of Samson. The Lord empowered him the whole 20 years. Although every relationship he has with a woman is unscriptural and immoral. He keeps his vows throughout his reign, and the Lord empowered him the whole time. Interesting. Number three. Outside of Jesus Christ, he was the wisest man who ever lived. We know that's Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to read about Solomon. Not, uh, not that Solomon, right? We're going to read about the, the smart Solomon. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Obviously, by the wording here, this is a marriage of convenience for both sides. But Solomon enters into something that is forbidden. And that is a marriage with a pagan woman. And he does this very early on in his reign, right? This isn't like, I'm about to die, so let me marry this lady. Like, this is very early on in his reign. We see later that it was approximately three-ish years into his reign. So this was very early in his 40-year reign. He did it openly, not in secret, in plain sight of all the people. All right? So... You're in 1 Kings 3. Turn a couple chapters, 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many strange women, 
together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them. Neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clave unto these women. He clave unto these women. So, as we look at this story toward the end of the reign of Solomon, we see that he was in obvious disobedience to the word of God. Obvious, right? It wasn't hidden. He didn't hide it. It wasn't gray. It was an obvious disobedience. The Lord strictly forbade these communions, which he made a thousand times according to God's word. So the first characteristic of Solomon is that he repeatedly marries unscripturally. In fact, we have never seen an account in the Bible of someone do it so often, right? So, like we did with Samson, let's look at his relationship to God. 1 Kings chapter 3, right? Turn back there. This time look in verse 3. Now this is God's word saying this about him. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. So we see that Solomon loved the women, but he also loved what? It says here. The Lord. There are only two verses that describe Solomon as loving anything. So that's our second characteristic. Number one, he loved women and he married unscripturally. Number two, he loved the Lord. That's what it says. And again, like we did with the others, look at how the Lord responds to this. Remember, it was after the first marriage of the daughter of Pharaoh that the Lord appeared unto him and eventually gave to him that unequaled Wisdom. Now, 99.9% of the time, that is the story associated with Solomon, right? He's a smart guy. Let's look at another one that often gets forgotten. This happened in about the 11th year of his reign. It was a dedication of the temple, right? A big uh, hurdle that that the Israelites had overcome. They'd been working on it for so long. Here it is, the dedication of the temple, and we read the whole account. We see this in 2 Chronicles 5, the story of the Lord filled the temple just as it had in the tabernacle before it. So for almost all of chapter 6, Solomon has prayed this lengthy prayer, right? And then we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, right? So in 2 Chronicles 5, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. 2 Chronicles 6, we see Solomon, he's praying and and making the dedication temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from the heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, I don't know about any of you, right? When, when you guys, I'm sure you had something special after you turned this place into what pastors show me the pictures looked like into what we see here, Right? In any of those dedications or celebration or potluck or whatever you had, did anyone see fire come down from heaven because God was pleased with what he saw here? I've never seen that, right? I've never seen fire come down from heaven. So the third characteristic is God uniquely, uniquely favored this man with wisdom, with riches, with honor, with this visible sign of God's favor and presence. And although he disobeys the Lord, 
his whole reign without even attempting to hide it, God uniquely favors this man. So, we have three examples in front of us. Three examples of individuals who on one hand are clearly favored of God, and on the other hand are clearly in rebellion against God. How can God bless these men when they do such wrong things? First and foremost, what you have to learn here is that these individuals, and there are many more than these three, but these three men are abnormalities. All right? these, these guys are like a four-leaf clover. Okay, And as we look at these men, we cannot deny the overwhelming favor that they are shown by the Lord. We can't deny that. And this is what trips people up when they look at these characters. You have one person that says, Solomon did this, and he was immoral. But on the same hand, you have someone else who says, but you should have seen the fire raining down from heaven. Right? So you're left with this unresolved question. How do you explain this away? Because if you don't ever explain the first question, then inevitably inevitably the second question is going to be this. Well, then maybe what they were doing, God doesn't really care about that much. Maybe it wasn't so wrong. That is where young people especially get tripped up. Especially. It's exactly how our minds work as humans. If we can't explain why it is that God can have his hand upon an individual who did things such as these, then the inevitable conclusion is that maybe God isn't concerned with this behavior. And you know that this is what happened to the Israelites in those days. Think about it. How could Samson not have been the hero to every young boy in Israel? He is literally Superman, right? He is a literal superhero in the flesh right there. <coughs> and, and, and what do you think happened when those boys became young men and wanted to marry outside of the nation of Israel? What happens when those boys want to marry a Philistine woman? Can you imagine the argument between them and their parents? The same thing with Solomon, right? How can a parent argue with their teen when, when they say, what, I can't marry outside of Israel? You think you're smarter than Solomon? What's a parent going to say to that? They could say, look, it hasn't affected him. He's the king. And dad, remember the fire, right, that rained down. You might win a battle with your rebellious kid for a minute, but they know what they've seen. They know what they saw with their own eyes. And as soon as they are no longer under your thumb, they're going with what their eyes told them was true. Right? That is always... I I, I know it is mine, and it's always... I, I, I know from talking to many parents of many teens, that is always the fear of Christian parents. Right? What are they going to do when they're no longer under my thumb? Right? Like, how much do I shelter them from and don't let them see, knowing that they will see that someday? Right? Like, they're literally going to be able to go out into the world someday. They're either going to see it on TV, they're going to see it in the real world, they're going to see it somewhere. Right? 
How much do I tell them about? How much do I explain it about? At what age do I do this? It's hard. It's scary. Right? The, the, the greatest thing, though, is that we're not alone in that. God gave us these children. These aren't our children. These are God's children that we are charged with raising for him. We've got God on our side, right? Anybody ever see that, that show Super Nanny? Or I think there was another one way back in the day. It was like when I was younger. Like these parents, they had lost control of their house, right? And this British lady would come and she'd look all like Mary Poppins. She would come and she would help them. And the parents just always seemed to have more confidence with her there, right? Because they felt like they had backup a little bit. Because usually what happens is, the dad wasn't present in the house. He was working and he would just watch TV as the kids were yelling at the mom. And like they would change all that dynamic, right? And they just felt better when she was there. That's essentially, but times a million, how we should feel with God. God has our back in these things. We seek Him. Every kid is different. Every house is different. Everywhere you live is different. And God will guide you in that. It's discernment. And let me tell you, everyone in this room leans toward one or the other of these questions that we've, asked, that we've asked today. If we tend to look at the wrong in life of the leader, our question will be the first one. But if our inclination is geared more toward results and what we can see, if we rely on what we see as God's apparent blessing, right, multiple conversions, large facilities, your question will undoubtedly lean toward, well, how can this be so wrong, Right? That's where young people get tripped up today with going to these mega churches, with guys preaching prosperity gospels and things like that. These guys are millionaires. They're renting out sports stadiums to have church services. And then someone comes in here and sees five people in our auditorium and says, well, how is this right and that's wrong? Right? Well, that brings me lastly to an approach of getting some answers. Right? What we need to see is that every single failure of these men was taken note of and recorded in your Bible. Every single failure. No one can say that God does not make his mind known because every one of these failures are recorded in the Bible. God did not fail to take notice. And God did not fail to record his disapproval. These men were not entirely faithful in their Christian walk, and the Lord is still talking about it here today at Nabavine Baptist Church. We're still talking about their failures today. What we need to make sure we understand is that even if God is seemingly silent over the course of two decades, 40 years, someone's entire life, that does not mean that the Lord has any less of an inflexible viewpoint concerning what is happening. He does take these things very seriously. Our application for our lives is this. One day we're all going to give an account to the Lord of everything that we've done. Every word that we've spoken, every action we've taken. We cannot look at our lives from the standpoint of outward success. You know, pastors, sometimes we'll be talking and... and you know, we'll be talking about different things like how this church is a lot smaller than ours back home. We don't have 
teen things or whatever, and, and sometimes, and I, it's jokingly, obviously, because we're, we're brothers in Christ, and he'll be like, don't get discouraged, you know, we're, this, do, it doesn't discourage me at all. Outward numbers have never been something in a church setting that has ever affected me, ever, from the time I was saved until now. And I, I try to remind him, there was a time when, and you'll meet him, because he's coming here eventually, when my first pastor, my father in the faith, left to become a missionary, and I was the interim pastor, until Pastor Anderson got there, who's there now as the pastor, there weren't many more people at our church at Heritage than this, Right? And, and the youth group had like five kids in it, right? Most of them were either brothers or sisters, so it was like one family, right? It wasn't much different than we have now, right? Those things shouldn't matter to us. They can't. What matters is that we're serving the Lord, we are doing what's right, right? Many times we feel this conviction, but our own heart twists it and tells us, but the Lord is blessing, you know, this or that in my life and so it really must not be that important that's not the case and in the end we will give an account of this the bible tells us definitively that in the end every man is going to give an account for his actions every man i don't know about anybody else in this room but during the time when i am on this earth i'm going to make my decisions with my bible what we need to remember in our own lives is that when looking at others is that the only thing that is right is the scriptural thing. The only thing that's right. It doesn't matter how many Christian liberties we think we have. It doesn't matter how much we like this, we like that, we prefer this, we prefer that. That means zilch. What matters is the scriptural thing. How does it line up with Scripture? Now, look, there are things that very smart and very good men can differ on as far as what is scriptural, what is not. Talk about those things. Don't argue about those things. Especially if it's something that isn't that important, right? If somebody's talking about can you lose your salvation, you know, things like that, like those are things that, look, you're, you're, doctrinally, you're doctrinally wrong, right? If you're talking about somebody wearing tennis shoes with their suit and, you know, how, you know, if you're talking about something like that, right, they, they shouldn't be kicked out of here for that, right? I don't really think you need to give them some counseling on that. Maybe that's all they got is some tennis shoes, right? Um, you know, we, we need to examine everything through, maybe they just think that their dress shoes hurt their feet too much. In the end, we have to be entirely scriptural. Examine everything through a Bible lens. Now, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not being sarcastic here. right? I'm not trying to be overly crazy. We should be examining everything through a Bible lens. right? So, I'm just going to give you guys some examples. The music we listen to. The clothes we wear. The clothes our kids wear. If our kids go to public school, private school, home school, right? If, if we attend church on a certain day, right? If our kids are in certain sports or clubs or whatever. Look, my kids have missed out on many things because we have church services, right? Like, Ro I've wanted to put Rogan, for example, I've wanted to put Rogan in wrestling since before he was born. I wanted a boy to put in wrestling 
since before I even had a son. And I have a lot of girls before Rogan. I thought I was never going to have a son, right? Until the Lord blessed me, right? I've wanted to put my son into wrestling forever. I don't know why, even here in Washington, every wrestling practice is on Wednesdays, right? So like to put my son in wrestling, he has to miss church. So guess what? Guess who's never been in wrestling? Rogan, right? Look, he'll be fine, right? Would I like it? Yes. Is that like me living vicariously through him? Kind of, right? Uh, would he enjoy it? Yes. Will he enjoy other things? Yes. Should I want him to enjoy church more? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, just because there's not a lightning bolt coming down and striking you in your life or someone else's life does not mean that the Lord is well pleased with that thing. We need to have faith in the scriptures. Faith to know what God will always come down on the side of scripture. Always. God is not a God of confusion. God is not a God of contradiction. God's never going to say something in this Bible, right? And then contradict it later. He will always come down on the side of scripture. If we as a church, if we as families, men, if we as the leaders of our homes, right? Ladies, as, as, the, as the, the help meet in the home, kids, as you are growing up in your life, all you have to do is grab God's word and see how what you want, what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're wearing lines up with the word. And don't tell me you can't find a Bible. I can download one in five seconds on my phone, right? We have literally the golden age of information here to where everyone in here has, it's not like we're looking for Gutenberg's press, right? Like to where people can't get the Bible because it can't be printed. You have literally the Bible on your phone to where you can touch any verse at any time, anywhere, any place. Always come down on the side of Scripture. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time we've had to look into your word. We thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you that you have given us the ability to have these Christian liberties in our life, to decide what is best for us, that you've given us free will. Lord, but we also love that you have given us clear guidance in your word that as we are making these decisions we can be blessed because we have made this decision with free will but to please you lord thank you so much for that with everyone's head bowed and their eyes closed i'm just going to ask two quick questions and i'm not going to prolong the invitation but I just have two questions. Number one, I did not directly preach on salvation this morning. 